5 through 12, 14. Preaching now and read, or reading now from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4 through 7. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, for us a, chi- a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And if you would, turn over to Matthew chapter 11, reading from verse 25 into the 12th chapter. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven of earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such as was your gracious will, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat nor for those who are with him, but only for the priest? Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you you had known what it means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of the Lord, excuse me, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if he falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy, like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him. How to destroy him. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for the fulfillment of your promises. And Father, we thank you for the continuation of those promises being fulfilled and manifested to us this day. And we thank you for the promises to come. Father, help us to see these, help us to believe these, help us to rest in your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I saw a post this past week about whether or not Christians should celebrate Advent or not. And there's been, it's a, been an age-old debate, and, and it seems like for this week, for some reason, I found myself in a variety of different conversations about whether it's a good thing. And there's the 
puritanical argument, and then there is the, the more celebratorial group of people, and then there's all the different cautions and concerns. I even had lunch with a, a former elder, another, not a former elder, but a, a, another elder, a friend of mine this week, and we were talking about that and just the different challenges of celebrating with family that may be more commercialized and then some that may be more puritanized and I, and I don't use puritanism in a in a bad tone I love the puritans but it is it is probably when it, in the reformed thoughts they're maybe the most articulate about the reasons why that they did not want to celebrate christmas but I would like to encourage that it is a good thing to go into the advent season because it's kind of like Rewatching a really great movie. It's, it's, it's a lot better than watching, rewatching a, a really great movie. But if you think about when, the, when you've watched a movie or even read a book and there was, at the end, you, you see the fulfillment of it or the, the, the twist in the end. You see the answer. The mystery has been revealed. You want to go back and, and, and look at the, from, from the beginning in light of what you know that is revealed. You know, I saw one argument saying, well, we have Christ. We have the fulfillment. We don't really need to go back into a posture of anticipation because we already know. And so to actually celebrate Advent is kind of silly because we already have the fullness. Can't we just celebrate the fullness? And I'm all about celebrating the fulfillment and the fullness. But to go back and to put ourselves in that position is very much to, to better understand what we have. What gift we have in Christ. We must go back to the Old Testament. We must go back to the promises and think about it in light of that way so that we can fully celebrate Jesus Christ's coming. So I think that is a good thing for us to be practicing this. And I think if we would look at these particular passages, both that are in the Old Testament and the Gospels, I think it would make our celebrations richer, not just for this Advent and Christmas season, but for every day, and particularly every Lord's Day, when we come together to worship Him. We want to know what gift we truly have. I know in past Advent sermons I've talked about how when we consider the gift that we have in Advent, is that it's like when for me, and I know many other children and adults alike, when we think about gifts that are under the tree, we have this, what is this, what's inside of this gift? And I remember many Christmas parties of past where I've been sitting in a crowded room full of a lot of people, and, and the gifts were overflowing out into the floor, and the people were overflowing into the floor. And so you're sitting next to gifts all around you, and you're trying to pretend that you're not looking at those gifts so you could see if your name is on that gift. And if you see something and you start imagining the shape of what it might be, and you think, I hope that one's mine, and you're kind of looking. Kids, you do that sometimes. You're looking to see where your name is on the gift. Has anyone not done that? <laughs> where they have not, you've never looked for the name. <laughs> Are you telling the truth? <laughs> we all look. We want to know if it's our gift. But can you imagine if you were in a party like that, and you didn't see your name on anything. And it was just one particular person's name on all of the gifts. Well, in many respects, that's what we do when we go first into Advent, is that we see that all of these gifts, all of the riches that are truly ours, are actually foremost Jesus' gifts that have been promised to him by the Father. And that as we are anticipating the Son, that the things that are going to be fulfilled, He is going to accomplish. So when we are sitting there and we're looking at the Scriptures and we're looking at all of the gifts, we first have to understand that His name, His name is on those gifts. Now the great thing is, is that as we continue to go through this celebration time, as we go through the party, we see that all of these gifts now have our name on them. It's scratched out in some respects, not so much scratched out, but it's covered and now has the name of us written there with Christ. That these gifts that bear his name now are also ours because as we look at our own hearts and ourselves, his name is upon us. 
And that's how powerful his name is, that these wonderful gifts that bear his name are being granted to us. I didn't get to, I've told you that I have three points in all of these sermons, and I never told you the third point last week, and Jennifer reminded me of that after I preached the sermon, that the first point is that Jesus comes to fulfill, that then the second point is that Jesus comes to enable and to equip, and then lastly, Jesus comes to save. And as I'm trying to put together this series of these Ten Commandments in an Advent format, I don't have it really broken out where we'll go through categorically each one of them. You have to kind of carry these three points and see them highlighted as we go through these particular passages as I highlight the Ten Commandments, two commandments at a time, throughout the season. And I hope to encourage you that as you look at these commandments... That you wouldn't go, man, I can't believe he's doing this. Who does, as as I was telling you, I was having lunch with an elder friend, and I said, I'm going through the Ten Commandments for an Advent series. And he's like, what? (laughs) Because I've never heard of anything like that. And I said, but it's really like gifts. They really are. His fulfillment of the law are like gifts. It's more like if we could look at it more as these ten gifts that we have in Christ, of his fulfillment of the commandments. These are gifts. You know, we have the 12 days of Christmas song where you go through and and the church actually has these symbolisms about what these gifts are. But we have, as we go through, we have these 10 tremendous gifts that have been promised to us in the fulfillment of the law by Jesus Christ. And they're all inside of these particular promises. And so... I don't think it's something to be daunted by, but for us to be excited by, that first, as we start looking and knowing that these particular gifts are the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments, and that the name of Jesus Christ is so powerful, but that the very zeal of the Lord is to assure that for those who have been promised to him, that his name will be on them, and therefore these gifts will belong to us just as they belong to him. Going back to Isaiah, I wanted to jump back a little bit. I first was just going to jump right in with verse 6, but then I thought verse 4 is where I really need to begin because it really starts out with rest. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Pause. What, What is the next two commandments that we're going to be focused on in light of those gifts today? Or maybe I should even say even better, what are the two gifts today? Last week were, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And also that thou shalt not have graven images and bow down to them. And then we had the discussion about how that commandment is fulfilled even further and how the worship of, of, of our people, of our children, and how the Lord will bless us as we love and serve him in obedience to how he is worshipped. That was kind of a full-packed run there of the second commandment. What are the third and fourth commandment gifts that we have by the Lord? Not to take the Lord's name in vain. So we're going to be thinking about the Lord's name. Obviously, they've already highlighted that very clearly. And then what's the fourth commandment? Keep the Sabbath day holy. To keep the Sabbath day holy. How do you keep it holy, Knox? By following. What would be one word you would summarize to do on the Lord's day? Rest. rest. To rest. To cease from our labors. But what else is inside of that fourth commandment? Is it just for us to rest? We are to, we are to worship. There's the implicit element of celebrating, remembering the Lord. Because we know as we go from Genesis into Exodus and Deuteronomy, and then namely the very resurrection of the Lord, that on the Sabbath, on the Lord's day, we have remembrance, and we remember the Lord, we are worshiping the Lord. But So we are to rest, we are to worship, keep it holy. to keep it holy. What else? The, the bulk of the words of the fourth commandment, have not been highlighted yet. It's kind of probably something that people tend to forget. Yes? Neither your family, nor your animals, nor the stranger in your gates is to work either. Everything within your control. 
and your covering, everything that's under your name, everything that's within your ability of reach that you can have that's under your covering is also to be granted that particular rest. I want to read that commandment out of Deuteronomy instead of Exodus this time because there was the time with God's people that it was repeated once again, but the, the fourth commandment has one extra um, <clears throat> couple of sentences in, in the commandment or the fourth commandment that's not in the Exodus passage, but I'm going to, I'm going to read both the, the third and the fourth in its fullness there. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then the fourth commandment, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. We don't actually see in that commandment that we are particularly to worship to have a worship service, but we see that the very point and purpose of that commandment is to remember. We are told throughout the scriptures to remember that the Lord rested when he created the earth and that he rested after that. So we're going to remember him as creator. And then here we are remembering that he is the liberator of God's people. And then we see that that's just really ultimately a shadow of our liberation, our rest from sin and death. That is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so it's very clear for us by the time we get to the other end of that, and they would have understood that even at the time of the Exodus, that we are to worship and remember the Lord, to honor him, and to keep that day holy. But that there should be this merger of physical rest with this worship of our spiritual rest. In fact, it's very much, if you can think about the commandments, that as Jesus has fulfilled these commandments and how he has provided these gift commandments to us in his fulfillment, that he is incarnating the commandments. He's incarnating something when he does that. When we think about the first commandment, it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does he do? He become, He is God in the flesh. He is God incarnate so that God can be before us, that we can be before God through the very person of Jesus Christ. It makes it so that we can truly have God as God, that he is our God. And then secondly, that we can worship him. Not by images, not by things of creation, but that he has come in flesh. That we worship the person of Jesus Christ. Not other parts of creation or to take things and to shape them in our own imaginations. But in Christ, incarnate, we are able to worship him. The same is true with his name because he has accomplished the name of Christ. And we can see throughout the scriptures how powerful and meaningful his name is. That by him giving us his name, by him proclaiming his name to us, it's incarnate in us to actually receive the power of Jesus Christ. And then just that is his name and his authority and his work that accomplishes the work so that we may have rest. The rest is now being given to his whole creation, but particular his people. So we can see in all of those cases that the incarnate Jesus Christ is a big portion of his fulfillment of those commandments. That is one reason why I see that it is so important for us to think about the commandments because it is very much the reason why we are anticipating our salvation is because of what he has done with those commandments. So going back to Isaiah just for a moment. So we see there that in verse 4, we see that there is the promise of rest, that this yoke of burden is going to be broken and removed. Jesus says, 
that we are to take his yoke, that his burden is light, that he has taken those burdens away from us, that he is relieving us and he is giving us rest from that yoke of burden. We see the promise of rest that the hope of Jesus Christ is to bring forth that great Sabbath. Then we go further in verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born, a son is given. So I want us to think about this. Before we see this, this portrayal of these names that this Messiah will have, we need to understand in light of what the names are meaning. We see that he is a son, that he is a son of God. We go back to Matthew when we see, or Luke in Matthew, when the, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you will have a, a son. He will be the son of God. He will be Emmanuel. He will be God is with us. That merged in that is his sonship. It is so important that we understand that his name is connected and merged in with him being the son, the son of God and the son of Mary. Again, bringing that name and that authority and that power to his people. Again, in verse 6, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And then it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's very important that I ask you all this question because I really want this to be rooted in. What is so important about the name of God? Why is that important? What do you think when you think about the importance of the name of God? What comes with it? I've given you all lots of hints, so it should be an easy one. I mean, I already talked about the meaning of it, right? God is with us, so, I mean, he's incarnate on earth, you know, fully man and, you know, fully God, I guess. Well, let's simplify it a little bit. What's, what's important about a name? What's, what, why is a name important? It gives you your identity. There's an identity, okay. What else? Characteristics and identity, okay. What else? In this particular case, why is it so important? Why is it when Moses, when he was talking with God and he needed to go and speak before Pharaoh, and he would say, well, who, who am I to tell him who sent me? And then he says, I am what I am, and, and, and that was the name of God. Why is that important? The authority behind the name, that there is authority interwoven with the name. That, you know, it's, it's funny, I, when I remember going to Washington, D.C. as a child, I think the first time I made it to D.C., I think Ronald Reagan was in the White House. And so I remember looking at the White House, and, and it was considered to be a, a, fa a fairly honorable thing. You know, wow, it's the White House, the president's in there. And I remember going into the Capitol and seeing all of these statues of all of the forefathers of the country. And it was, you know, there's just great honor because there's this, there's this power behind these names. And then I went again when Bill Clinton was in the White House. And it didn't feel <laughs> the same way. I was kind of, like, I don't really like being in Washington, D.C. Bill Clinton's in the White House. you know, Because a different name had a different meaning behind it. And then later on, I, I visited and there was Obama there. I went, with Adam and I went a couple of years ago. I think Trump was in office. Biden was, Biden was already in office when we were there? Okay, so, so I just remember different times ago, there's kind of this different feel of what's going on there because the name of the person has connected with it, the, the potency of their, their power. Well, the, the name of God is the, the, the biggest and greatest name because of the power that's behind it. And so there's two things here before we hear, hear these four names. One, he is a son. A son has certain rights. A son has certain power, has certain authority. Then we see in the second part of verse 6 that the government shall be on his shoulder. That when we think about the name of God, and when you hear Handel's Messiah sing this particular portion of Scripture in Isaiah, you, you should sense in that, and I think Handel has it in there, that there is a power and authority in these names that he has, that he's wielding, that he's carrying this ability, this strength in his name. The first name we have here is that he is a wonderful counselor. Now, 
I think it means the kind of wonderful that we would think of. Like, oh, that's so wonderful. God is so wonderful. But it's, it's even beyond that, that his wisdom, that his counsel, that his truth is one that we are just in, in wonder of, that we are amazed at, that he carries so much wisdom, that he carries so much truth, that his name is Wonderful Counselor. That is that powerful of a name. And then secondly, he is the mighty God. He is the son, but he is the son of God. He is God. He is a mighty God. There's power in that name. There is authority in that name. Now here's an interesting one. Everlasting father. I know that kind of trips us up there. Especially if you're Trinitarian. Now, for some people, it trips them up so much that they go wacky on their doctrine of understanding of the Trinity. How is Jesus an everlasting father? Have you ever thought about that? You probably have sung that song. You've heard that song before. How is Jesus an everlasting father? He is the son of God. We've already made that very clear. Is he changing positions? Is he swapping places with the heavenly father? Is he both the heavenly father and the son of God at the same time? Yes. <laughs> he's, he, he's not in the person in, in that role. It's, but it's, it's, it can be kind of confusing. And I think it's particularly confusing in this age. And one reason why is, and, and, and this is one reason why I think that we should really fight this is because <clears throat> Satan has made it clear if you go, you know, like I said, if you go to the abortion mill or if you go to any kind of political rally um, and you hear the, the most staunch, harsh, rebellious, <laughs> liberal thinking people who just hate God and government, you will hear them saying down with the patriarchy. They hate the concept of patriarchy. And what we have here is a highlighting that Jesus embodies the fullness of patriarchy. That he has this protective, this everlasting protective authority. That the same kind of thing when you think about a father, then the son is inheriting that calling. Jesus Christ is inheriting the calling of a protector, an everlasting protector and guide. And that's why Satan puts it upon the lips of, of, of those who are lost in darkness is that we don't want to celebrate the patriarchy of God. That he is the son of God in the sense that he is who he is in, in light of his relationship with the father and who he is in light of his inheritance. But his role is everlasting father. He is everlasting patriarch in his power and authority and protective nature of his people. It is something that we want to celebrate. That we want to know that God is going to protect his people. So it's not that he changes roles, but it's his, a part of his function as protector. Just like a father is. And he is, in a sense, he does play that role with us of everlasting father. He is the prince of peace. Again, the name is very clearly one indicating that he has a position of authority, but his position of authority brings peace. And throughout all of the scriptures, we see married with peace, rest, that God is bringing peace. It, Jesus brings peace between us and the Father. He brings peace to us by taking the wrath of God so that we do not have to take that. So peace and rest are interwoven. But the very next verse is how this is being administrated, how this is being brought out, is in the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. We don't typically think of government as a very peaceful thing. Just like when I say when I go to Washington here now, I'm a, I'm a little different in my thinking. When I go to Washington, I'm like, Argh. you know, Richard was just talking about being up in northern Virginia recently, and you're kind of like, ah, I want to get out of this place. That like Washington is oozing over to all of northern Virginia, and it affects our politics even all the way down here. That here, just people would rather be on this side of the street because it's a little bit more like Washington right over there, just on the other side of the street. 
And it's a sad thing. We don't, we don't think of government, but Christ's government is a good government. His kingdom is a good kingdom, that his government is about rest and peace. But it is a government. It is power and authority. And there is a structure of that power and authority that Jesus is continuing in his reign to fulfill. So if he has a government, if he has a kingdom, if he is a king, we should be very much wanting to know how is he ruling that kingdom. That the more we know about the law of God, the more we know about the word of God, we are going to find that through his governance, that through his reign and through his rule, what are we going to benefit with at the end of that peace rest goodness mercy and grace and he says so we see this in the second commandment that if we are those who do not want to be in his commandments and be about his word we're going to receive wrath we're going to receive judgment we're going to see turmoil we're going to continue to receive the oppression of the burden that sin and death Bring his government is to be celebrated. Our anticipation of the advent of the Lord is that his government is going to be established. His rule is going to be established. He didn't come to bring anarchy. He came to bring his government, his administration, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And that is where we will find his rest. He is the prince of peace of the increase of his government and the peace, will, there'll be no end. Think about that. His government is going, isn't going to stop. It's not going to get to a point and then end, and then there's just this anarchic kind of place of Shangri-La. <laughs> his government is going to continue to cover everything. And his peace at the same time, as his government covers, so there will be also that peace. It is married and connected together. Going over now to Matthew, again, you'll have to apply these three different points along with it as the Lord fulfills that that um, name, by taking on the name, by Jesus is the name of God. He is bearing that name. Then, and then he's also granting it to us in the inheritance of that name. He is enabling it as we fall under that government in life. We begin to receive the benefits of that inheritance. And we see that ultimately that his coming is bringing a salvation for us. But as we look at Matthew 11, we see that the name continues to have power. We see that in Matthew, excuse me, yeah, Matthew chapter 11 and going into 12, there in the first paragraph of chapter 12, that the Son of Man is the Lord of Sabbath. We see that this name has this power and authority that as he is in conflict with the Pharisees, that he explains to them that they are not misunderstanding just his fulfillment of the Sabbath. They never understood the Sabbath in the first place. He doesn't go and he says, oh, but you don't understand that now that I am here, you don't have to be so upset about these guys eating grain or you shouldn't be so upset about me healing someone on the Sabbath. He's saying, no, let's go back to David and read David. Let us go back to the law and understand the essence of the law that you've missed out on understanding Sabbath from the Old Testament passages. He's not admonishing them like, well, if you knew what I've come to do, I've come to get rid of all of this silliness about the Sabbath. You can do whatever you want to do. That's not what he's saying. He said, you never understood my rest in the first place. And then we see in Hebrews that they never understood God's rest in the first place. And he's saying that I am the Lord of the Sabbath, But who is the Sabbath for? In the passage that we've read. For man. So he's the Lord of the Sabbath. His name and his title and his power and authority is that he is the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath. But the Sabbath is for man. So his lordship, his rule and governance over the Sabbath is for the purpose of granting us rest. 
Backing up a little bit, we see that he's praying to God here in, in chapter 11. He says, I thank you that you have revealed these truths to little children. Again, the, the whole anticipation of, of God's light is that it will come and that we'll know Jesus Christ, that we'll understand all of the promises in its fullness, and that we, to be able to receive that, we have to be little children. But we see that right after he thanks God for that in chapter 11, in, in verse 27, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And he says, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, we understand that, that when Jesus fulfills the name, he has power and authority. He has the name of the Father. But that name now enables us to know him, to have revealed to us who the Father is, to have revealed to us to know who the Son is. So he enables us by being the one who bears the name and authority. He also has the authority and the, the function of enabling us and equipping us with knowledge. And then he calls us to worship him by saying, come to me. And what does he give? I will give you rest. That is why we merge worship and rest together. This time of worship, even though you might think, man, Charles, your sermons are just kind of all over the place. I don't feel very rested when I'm listening to your sermons. Well, I'm sorry if I am a handicap to that, but the words in which I preach should, if you see in this Jesus Christ, that there will be rest as a byproduct of understanding his word. That's my, my labor and strive is to, to let us enter into his rest by understanding who Jesus Christ is. So what does it mean not to take the Lord's name in vain? How can we, now that we understand that inside of that present is the name of God, how can we mess that up? How can we go against that? How do we take the Lord's name in vain? So we can. How would we falsely represent his name? Right. So one thing is, that if we have revealed to us the person of Jesus Christ, his name will match the person. So when we go outside of what to describe Jesus, how do we falsely? What are we going outside of at that point? His authority, but his word. So whenever we go anywhere to try to understand, like I said last week, whenever we say, I know God's heart and he wouldn't do this or he wouldn't allow this travesty to happen or some kind of thing like that, when we say that we know God's heart and it does not match and parallel who Christ is, you know, we read today in the lectionary readings that Jesus is going to kill people. How many people talk about that? <laughs> it says there in his word that he's going to kill his oppressors. He's going to, he's going to strike them down. Praise be to God. It's typically not a thing that we have in our Christian, the Christmas hymns that he is going to come and kill the oppressor. That he's going to destroy. Well, that is an attribute of who he is. It's not the only attribute of who he is. And thankfully, he's not coming to kill us because we take refuge in him. So we should be consistent with what his word says. But when we do things now, so if his name has been granted to us, it, what was the thing you said, Abigail, that a name, what it means? Identity. identity. And so if his name has been placed upon us, then our identity is in him. So just as his name is called all these things, we have a calling. We have an identity. And so we are no longer ourselves. Thanks be to God, we are no longer ourselves. Our calling is in him. So if we are living out Against our calling that is now bearing his name, we are bearing his name in vain. We are taking his name. It's interesting that even though I do believe that you need to be careful on how you say his name, it says to take his name in vain. It means when we are saying that we have his name and his calling, but we are doing something in opposition to what he says our calling is. 
And if we don't believe that he has a government, if we have this really whacked idea that Jesus came to bring utopian anarchy, then it's going to be very easy for us to just interpret for ourselves and devise for ourselves an understanding of how that calling should be played out. And therefore, we are taking his name in vain. But we see in his promises that he is going to assist us, even in our confession of faith today, that he says, that, or in the confession of faith says, that with, without God's continual care, we will not be able to even obey him. His government will have no end. He is going to govern his people. And he governs his people by the work of the Holy Spirit. But inside of this calling that we have to bear his name, we need to understand that not only is it to be along inside of what his word has commanded, but we have to understand that we have to rest in his work. That's what I love about the Deuteronomy passage for the fourth commandment is that we must remember that we were a slave. Those slaves could not get out of Egypt. They could not have rest on their own. That God had been the one who brought them out of there with his mighty hand, with his outstretched arm. And so therefore, we can only remember that the rest is accomplished in the Lord. When we think about the Lord's Day, when we think about Sabbath, we must remember our humble state. When we think about the Pharisees and how they abused the Sabbath, they took the Sabbath and they made it a burden. And they weren't thinking about their salvation. They were being, thinking about it as another work that they would have to do. And this is why Jesus in the, in, the, in the Matthew passage is saying that it is lawful to do good and that it's more lawful to do good to man than it is to, do an, to even your animals. Now, we know that it's a law to be good to your animals, but it's certainly important for us to be gracious to man. And when we think about the fourth commandment, we should understand that it is the, probably one of the most evangelistic good news commandments that we have. Because it's telling us to grant rest to other people. Now, I've been trying my best to figure out a way to preach this without pushing too hard of my own personal opinions about the Sabbath. Because I know that in the Reformed world that there, there isn't perfect unity and understanding of how we are to live Sabbath. And I want to, I want to try to stay tightly close-knit to what Jesus is proclaiming. But he is, when we think about the fulfillment of rest that Jesus brings... It should, and we think about his full authority over all of creation, we should be looking at ways that Jesus Christ has brought rest over everything. Now, the interesting thing that for a lot of people who are not so Sabbatarian in their practice on Sunday, they would say, well, he's already accomplished our spiritual rest, and therefore those shadows are gone, so... If I want to work on Sunday, I can work on Sunday. If I want to go shopping, I can go shopping on Sunday. If I need to get some things taken care of, you know, it's the spiritual rest that he's accomplished. It was all about the spiritual rest. Well, the interesting thing is that the commandment was very heavily about the physical rest. It's almost that we're kind of this, this Gnostic kind of understanding that now that Jesus has come, he's only brought us spiritual rest. It's almost like the inversion of Pharisaicalism, whereas the Pharisees were all focused so much on this, don't do this, don't do this physically, that they lost the point of the spiritual essence of it. They also lost, the, I think, the, the essence of the, of the physical part of it also. But we can become, in our liberty, we can actually now feel that we have the liberty to never have rest. Which is very odd, because the very point and purpose of the command was to grant us rest. Now, I don't want to step too hard on toes, because I know you have Calvin has a view, and, and, and Luther has a view, and there's all kinds of different views of the Sabbath. But we should be people of rest. 
We should be people, we can look at creation of how God created. See, people yawning. <laughs> it's like, I want to go take a nap <laughs> right now. Can we just take a nap now? Can you give me some rest right now? Well, think about the day and how the Lord gives us the day and, 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 and he gives us the night. He gives us daily rest. Even the world knows to grant rest and relationship. The company that I work for, there are so many different rules and regulations of making sure that you have time to play together and time to do fun things together, to have team-building rest where you're not just thinking about work, but that you have this moment where you can let your hair down and enjoy each other. They know that for productive work, you need to grant rest. It's built into every part of our being. Well, we see here that the Lord both has a creational mandate that he himself rested when he worked at creation. We have a salvific calling, but we also have the moral calling because it's, we are called to do this to others. And so when we think about our relationships, it should embody in every element of our, our lives. We should be, one, making sure that we are resting. And it's not just a... a you're laying down rest, but a mental rest. Think about what happens when you sleep at night. When you sleep at night, when you get your best REM sleep, they, everyone that I've heard explain this to me is that your brain is offloading fluff. It's cleaning up your brain. You're, you're, when you're in REM sleep, it's kind of like uploading and, or offloading all of the clutter so that when you wake up the next morning, you have a more fresh mind. Well, if, if we do not enter into both mental, physical, and spiritual rest, that means that clutter sticks with us. If we go all week long doing seven days a week of work where we're full of our empl- daily occupations, full of our, even our entertainments and amusements, just like we are all the other parts of the day, you never have a chance to get off that fluff. It just that residual junk will continue to stay not only in your brain but in your soul. The Lord grants us a weekly rest. He grants us daily rest. He gives us we we typically no matter even if you're on a certain kind of fasting diet, you typically still have to have one or two times during the day where you're taking a rest to eat and being refreshed. But in your relationships, you know, like and too bad Knox is not in here that you know, I mean kind of me and Knox have been you know, kind of sparring a little bit, and then he bought these tickets to go to a fight, which is ironic, and it was so much fun for him and I to have this rest to go to a fight last night. where I wasn't telling him how to be a man and telling him things that he was doing wrong. That We just had a good time together by going to this fight. There was this part of a rest in that relationship. We need to find opportunities in our relationships to grant each other rest. Well, Jesus is the fullness of that, that he brings that. He's actually saying he is the Lord of Sabbath. And when we think about how should we be like him now that we bear his name, we should be finding ways to be like the Lord in granting rest. Where do we learn that? We learn it in the fourth commandment, to grant rest over everything in our care, including our animals, including creation. Jesus came incarnate to not just bring spiritual rest, but to bring physical rest. So whether or not you do your studies or you do you go in and clean up and get ready for work for the next week on Sunday, I don't I don't want to necessarily go there. But would it not be understood that by the design of his word and by the design of creation, that we should take at least one in seven to offload all the fluff? and to actually rest, and to grant that to other people that are within our care. At least think about that, that as Jesus is saying that we should be at least one day out of seven granting this kind of mercy to those in our care. It is an evangelistic opportunity to show how Jesus comes and accomplishes rest Every time you see him talking about either his name or talking about rest, it is in light of the authority of what he is accomplishing. If we think that we can manufacture rest without understanding that he is the Lord of rest, then we're probably going to do it wrong. A lot of people say, well, it's rest for me to, to just 
veg out all the time on my phone or on TV. I can tell you statistically, or not statistically, but science is against that. You're not finding rest by just vegging out on TV or on your phone. And it's funny, some people say, well, I like to, (laughs) this is one of the age old things. And I guess it's because you can see people out mowing on Sunday. And people say, well, I enjoy mowing on Sunday. It's where I find my rest. It's interesting. It's a $100 billion industry for people to try to make mowing easier. But on Sunday, it's where people find it to be a thing of rest. Now, if you might say, well, that's kind of me. I, I like going out and mowing. And, and sure, I know moments where it's nice for me. No one's talking to me. I, the sounds are all blocked out because of the mower. I can see how there's rest in that. But I think a lot of times people are looking for excuses to replace the rest that God gives us, that God has designed both in creation and also in his proclamation in his word, that is for rest for us ultimately, for our our body and soul. And then when we go further along in the promises of his name, we see that we see this merger here. It says, Peter said to them in Acts 2, it says, to repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then if we go back to Jeremiah, we see in Jeremiah, ah, I lost it here. By Jeremiah, um, back in Isaiah, it says in Isaiah, it says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repenting and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. We see that the combination of here with repentance and belief is the same thing as repentance and rest. We see that when we repent and believe and we are taken on the name of Christ in baptism, that we receive not only acknowledgement of the repentance that he has granted us, but we have received his rest. The call of the gospel is the proclamation of God's fulfillment of making his name powerful enough to bring us salvation. The proclamation of the gospel is showing that his name is powerful enough to bring us rest. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the proclamation of the gospel and this call to repentance and rest. We thank you that we get to bear the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us not to take it in vain. Father, we pray that you would not let us be those who, just like we see in Jeremiah and Isaiah, who when you would proclaim your rest, that they would refuse it. That they would seek to go back to Egypt even, to be put back under the yoke of burden. Father, help us not to be like that in this age, that we would not be those who would take your name in vain. That we would not be those who would forget the rest that has been accomplished in your son. Father, we ask for mercy in these things because we are those who want to take control. We are those who want to apply in one hand your name on things that are not what you said. And on the other hand, we want to work when we should rest. Father, forgive us where we've done these things wrong. And help us to come to you truly in repentance and faith, truly in returning to you, to your name and your rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us praise and thank the Lord.